Hello, welcome to the Bad Vibes Club with me, Matt Girado. Today is the final, the finally final, final episode of our Adam Curtis podcast. So thank you so much to Adam. <laughs> As it means to say, Adam. Thank you so much to Andrea, Ross and Oscar for their work over the past six episodes. Today, it's just me, Andrea and Ross and we're in a park in South London so we're all recording on our phones so the quality isn't quite as good this week but hopefully you'll excuse us anyway there's a few things we mentioned that we can't remember because we're out in the park so I can't google it near the end we talk about a Russian uh, historian called Peter Turchin who is um, kind of does long term data driven he claims data driven history and we also talk at the end about Lutz Dambeck who is the director that we want to watch next who has been described by Harry Kunzru as basically doing Curtis style films but properly and that film is Time of the Gods yeah it's just a summing up episode we all kind of talk about what we got from the series and what we've come to learn about Curtis's technique and his approach to filmmaking you know we haven't changed our positions much <laughs> andrea is not a fan and me and ross are slightly less critical but at the same time i think looking closely at something like this really makes you see the kind of ideological holes in it and that's been an interesting process anyway i'll, I'll let you listen to the conversation that we have and i'll see you at the end so i watched the whole thing this morning at speed not at speed at the right speed I was claiming I was going to watch it at double speed but I didn't what about you Andrea did you watch the whole I thing I watched the whole thing yesterday I cannot believe you two are the ones that are supposed to like it I watched the whole two hours yesterday it was so boring and Ross did you watch it I think I watched the first hour and a half oh okay, okay. I'm there I'm there yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where did I get to <gasps> it's, it's difficult to say where you got to because it's I don't even know which episode a lot of the stuff is in. <laughs> anyway, definitely um, 9-11 had definitely happened. We're back on familiar Adam Curtis territory. Yeah, he was we? back talking about psycho- positive psychology. Oh, yeah. Um, you know. There's a nice montage at the end of like, all, all your favourite characters. Yes. <laughs> it's really good. It's like that. It's like Afina Shakur twice for no reason, and then like that guy, that Chinese guy in that uh, protest who gets all the clothes ripped off appears again for no reason. <laughs> it's really nice, but I was surprised. I didn't know it was going to be two hours, so that was like a bit of a setback because <laughs> I just thought it was going to be one hour. So we watched seven hours of it. I think maybe we don't. We don't, let's not spend forever doing this because for the listeners, we're we're in a park. We're not recording on Zoom. So this feels appropriate that it's the last one of Alan Curtis we're watching, like it was some kind of sentence we're subjected to. But we, we're, I mean, I know I forced you guys to watch it, but maybe we could, like, sum up any questions we had at the start and then maybe answer those questions or say where we're at now with those questions or ideas or assumptions about Curtis and what he does. And So my interest was basically to really think about Adam Curtis rather than just have it on and then forget about it and then watch the next one in five years whenever he makes something was to really think about the techniques he uses of montage of voiceover of on-screen text um his very particular use of pop music and his kind of interest in the archive or his use of the archive i don't know i think i've learned a lot about his techniques i've just focused more on them thinking a lot about the text on screen and how it's deployed 
And then I think the music stuff has been almost answered necessarily in this series because the whole series is about feeling and pop music is so much about the exposition of and the exploitation of feeling and Adam Curtis does that a lot and yeah listening to these podcasts and reading some stuff around Adam Curtis it's clear that a lot of the critique is basically like it all kind of hangs together in the in the films and then whenever he speaks he kind of you realize that it's all a bit empty and a bit less meaningful than when it's in video form do you thought that, so we, we both heard the talking politics podcast yeah. with um is it david runciman yeah no yeah and do you think him talking is even less meaningful than the films because i just i just find the the film so, so i mean so meaningless in themselves and meaning is meaning is totally the wrong word affecting okay. yeah okay and like you know enjoyable like i enjoyed the films i mean seven hours is a bit much and doing it with the podcast was a lot of work but i did enjoy them but yeah it's it's much less affecting when he's talking you just think wow this is now just reduced to an argument and there's lots of holes in it yeah I mean I think I was and I'm still um, quite puzzled about you know what people like him or hate him like I just I think the caring is what puzzles me it's like why do people care what Adam Curtis do to that level especially specifically I guess in our area like in the arts or like my Twitter is just so full of like comments and people that love it or hate it or have an opinion and it just it doesn't Like if we didn't, if we haven't done the podcast, I wouldn't bother to have an opinion on Adam Curtis <laughs> in that sense. And I think I don't, I don't know. I don't think he has answered that question. I think what then came to me through the whole series and the podcast is like it's like his relation with the archive of this person, like like his own subjectivity when making these films and why it bothers me so much. And I was thinking about this yesterday when I watched two hours uh, last episode and I was like looking at my Twitter again and, and tr going back to this question like who are the people that I follow that I like it or hate it or something and there was this comment from the athlete group on Twitter and it was like the thing is like that archive is so amazing and it's so expensive to use those images and there's quite a few people saying that it's like what would be if the BBC were allowing like women and trans people and black people and migrants to tell these stories like why does Adam Curtis which is this kind of really annoying and kind of like self-centered white old dude is allowed and the way he talks about and talking politics is like that it's like you know he's like we like no one is doing you know politics of imagining things and I'm like dude there's like black feminist abolition is happening right now on the street it's like it's just because you're not the center of that imagination doesn't mean that it isn't happening and it made me think about that that relation of exclusivity that he has with the BBC that is what allows him to do that there's like something about that privilege and he's not acknowledging of that privilege but maybe that's why people talk about him a lot because I suppose he's the one person who's doing this on the BBC rather than in the art world or on their own or independently or with funding from elsewhere yeah I think I think that's the privilege that makes him be a center of the conversation because he's the only one who can do that so we have to talk about it because the BBC archive is interesting and there's lots of interesting stuff that comes through it but wouldn't it be amazing that, and I'm not even saying don't let Adam Curtis do yeah, it yeah. but could we have like 20 people doing it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> instead of just him what about you Ross is there is there anything that's changed for you because you've watched I lots think of so things, right? yeah I, in the, yeah in the past but I think just on that point about the BBC and why people are into it I think it is about that exceptionalism of it I think certainly before with the you know with the other kind of big films that he's done 
most conversations were normally preceded with like it's just totally crazy that the BBC let someone make a film that didn't have a basic narrative even you know like basic stuff like that it's just it just felt completely alien for the BBC Um, I think I said at the beginning that similar to you Matt really that it just the fact that he'd made them in episodes kind of gave an opportunity to think about them as to have a conversation with them as it as it developed so sort of kind of not in real time but as the, as the sort of film progressed what it showed for me and I think from our conversations but also with the latter films where he was talking about up to date histories or recent histories which I know more about was just how much he picks part of that history and uses it to make his own argument which I think is completely fine but up until now and I think this is partly me not knowing much about the histories that he's been talking about and partly just watching them as at a surface level and just enjoying having my mind blown by these conspiracies that he comes up with you know up until now I hadn't kind of realised that but I think in this last episode I think it really I really felt like wow you've just left so much out of that particular history and I guess he just does that you know all the time and, and just bends it to not bends it presents a very focused part of it to support his argument. You know, I think maybe I did... The, the talking politics, what he was saying on talking politics, I did come round to the method a bit. Like, What was he saying about the method on talking politics? I can't remember I think that he bit. was just... Uh, he wasn't saying anything about it specifically, but I think he was... This... He was saying that he was trying to paint or trying to present, like... that kind of idea of presenting a feeling or, you know, where not all of the parts had to be properly explored or, you know, you could introduce characters just to describe something and and I kind of I don't know whether I agree with that as a as a way of making films but I can much more see what he was trying to do with it actually yeah I think that was definitely my interest was to see how he did the things he did but I think because it's also the first time I've watched it critically and really to be honest watched it with other people like normally it's just you know the iPlayer is just something you watch on your own isn't it generally and so I'd never really thought about these things and just you know you've just got a particular interest in black British history in the local area in London and stuff and so I watched that um, other, the other BBC the Black Power film and yeah like when other people have access to that archive it's explored in a different way the one thing I will say about that Black Power film was that it was much more BBC like it was like it it felt the weight of the editorial guidance of the BBC they were not allowed to make any wild claims that Adam Curtis you know like the BBC's been very very quiet and very government following on for example the Uyghur Muslim population in China and in this last episode of Adam Curtis he just suddenly talks openly about the re-education camp like I'm glad but it's also fucking crazy that he's the only person on BBC who's really like explore and he doesn't explore it he just broadly touches on it because it's another gesture in the contemporary landscape isn't it 
anyway but there's obviously just so many different ways of like exploring these topics and but yeah it, I think that's a really good point Andrea like if there were just more people allowed access to that archive in that exploratory way you just get loads of amazing films so now right? there aren't there's just Adam Curtis and to be fair like quite a boring you know not not boring in content like the Black Power documentary was fascinating but in terms of like form it's very like staid it's quite traditional I can't remember the director's name I said it on the last podcast but um it's just a broad overview of the Black Power movement in Britain from the 60s to today, really. But, like, the focus is on the 60s and 70s and 80s. But they really go into Michael X. And the, their whole thesis of Michael X is that he was used by the press as this focal point because he would happily do interviews and he would appear in public and blah, blah, blah. So he was always talked about as the leader of the Black Power movement in Britain when that's just not, just wasn't the case. So that was interesting to see that really specifically laid out. Yeah, because, you know, then it makes sense that he's so important in Curtis film because he's so present in the BBC archive and stuff like that. So I think those connections are super... Um, I think one of the things that really got me, especially listening to the podcast, is the way... It's kind of the rhetorical devices that Curtis uses. So the way he is always framing, like, the scientists. So all the liberal and leftists thought this. The scientists thought this, but I saw the truth. There's a way in which... Because I'm quite interested in epistemology and stuff like that, in the way he constructed this thing when he tells you no one else realized this, but you and me, we are a team now. And That's the we conspiracy know. part of it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, he just can't stop himself. He just like is constantly using that as a, as a device, and you listen to it and think like that is not true. Or he'd be like, all academics define your liberalism like this, and you're like, no, they don't. Oh, <laughs> that really made me laugh actually. Like on the talking politics, he's like. David Runciman's like, oh, you don't really like the term neoliberalism. And then he basically goes and he says, no, I think what happened. And then he describes neoliberalism. And he says, and I don't like neoliberalism because I don't think academics really know what they mean when they describe it. And I was thinking, that, they mean that. And that's why they had to invent a word for it. So you don't have to say that every time you... Like, that's what words are. Like, it's not their fault that they use words. I get his point that he, he has a slightly different theory of when this change occurred and why it occurred. But, yeah... But, the, but I think that the things like so much of his discourse is spent victimizing himself as this person who sees things and other does in, instead of like focusing on the actual thinking. And I think some of the stuff at the end of the podcast I actually found it interesting. Like his, his, you know, his thing about like how we, we kind of construct knowledge of pattern making, and then he kind of like uh, talk about the arts council. And we do have that in common because I do think the arts council in relation to data is absolutely horrible. But um, so like the way you know he's talking about how. Yeah, pattern making as a way of knowledge has completely changed the way we relate to each other. Like, I thought he's not his idea and he's not the first person to say it, but I think there are interesting things in his thinking that if he spent less time saying, but no one else has ever seen this except of me, he could have actually <laughs> been interesting. I think that's, that's the cult leader aspect where he's changing, he's using different words for things that already exist so that you mentioned this before, so that him and his viewers can be like oh we're the ones who understand it but in fact they're just using different words for things that other people are discussing yeah I mean neoliberalism is just one of many things but yeah the dream world is like another thing where dream world is just ideology but do you think that's do you think they're part of his discourse and his kind of attempt to persuade 
uh, people uh, of his argument? Or do you think they're kind of dramatic techniques to, to bring you in? Because I noticed in the last episode, I, I kind of came to realise that everyone that he talks about is fascinated by something. <laughs> so it's like Dominic Cummings was fascinated by a chaos theory. Yeah, yeah. And it's like... No, it's probably not true. He probably just read a couple of books on chaos theory and started using it because it was useful to describe something that he wanted to happen. But I was kind of thinking, is that just a dramatic turn to kind of spice up the narrative a bit? Or is it something... Is it something more? Does it give more power to the theory and to the knowledge that is controlling Dominic Cummings? Or, or I, I can't really articulate it. I think if you think about it, like loads and loads of people were reading about chaos theory in the 90s and loads and loads of people were reading about complexity theory in the 2000s because they were the big pop science books that were out. So Dominic Cummings, using those ideas because he's basically an elitist, elitist technocrat, it's very unsurprising he wouldn't have reached back and reached for an outmoded idea or an an idea that's already been applied because he has to, you know, just use the new one, don't you? So I think fascinated just as though they discovered it or something when in fact it's like part of the zeitgeist. And so it's actually very hard to attribute... This is his issue, right, is that he's trying to talk about individualism but his entire documentary-making technique relies on individuals being the focus. But that doesn't really... Ironically, that's not very useful for something about individualism because that subscribes to the theory of, you know, the theory that the world is only made up of individuals who have particular interests and therefore can I explain things like complexity theory becoming zeitgeisty rather than just being particularly, you know, fascinating to like one individual or whatever. So I think it is a dramatic technique, yeah. And I think it's fine to use, but it does cover up quite some quite big holes in his theories about how ideas spread which is that it's not just ever one person who's like oh I've read this book so now I'm going to like change the world it's like those things are in everyone's mind so when Dominic Cummins says complexity theory to a group full of businessmen they've all read the book and they're like oh yeah you're right because I've read that and therefore we're right because you look like me and we're all rich and that's like power is very different from just like one person convincing yeah he didn't have to convince anyone Dominic Cummings was like thought he was changing the world and perhaps that's true right but everyone else saw him as a very useful tool to like do to continue the status quo, right? Like as far as I can tell. And I don't think that's too far from Adam Curtis's story, but it's one that he can't really incorporate because Dominic Cummings has to be another powerful individual. But but I'll go back to what Russ was saying about you know dramatic device, and I call it like a rhetoric device. But it's the same. There's something that is done for that choice of words, like you know that it's not like coming discovers or believes that he's fascinated. It's like people have these emotional attachments, and that's like a really integral part of his thing, right? That we have these emotional attachments to certain theories or certain ways of explaining how we live in the world or something. And um, I hadn't thought of. I think that's a that's an interesting catch. Like fascinating, such a specific choice of word so do you think oh yeah so maybe he has used that a lot in this series particularly because this is about emotion oh so fair enough that's that's quite yeah he definitely is slotting those feeling based words in when he can I think um, he does capture something about the liberal response to Brexit and Trump that's probably been well it has been explored a lot elsewhere but it kind of I'd kind of forgotten about it like this conspiracy theory thing of like Russia and 
the walls closing in there's a nice montage of all the liberal commentators on MSNBC or whatever it's called they're all saying the walls are closing in about the Mueller investigation and of course the walls weren't closing in at all like there was no hard evidence of like corruption well not corruption of collusion and conspiracy but this obsession that like for people to have voted Trump in they must have been fooled by external manipulators they can't have just been expressing something yeah but I think but the That's complicated there because it's the same thing. It simplifies the story because it's also a story about gerrymandering and it's also a story of like the Republicans not allowing a large percent of the population to vote, which is a population that would have voted against Trump. So in a sense, it's it's complicated to just like reduce that to like, oh, this was just, you know, the liberals. talking about. Or no, like, but to be fair, I think he's talking about the liberal response after the election was to not talk about those things and to focus on an external manipulator, which I think like... You know, the, like, focus on Russia. The liberal response, like, Arlie Hushall launched that book. There was, like, a lot of other discussions about, if anything, there was, there's, a, there's another story that is about how much effort was put in understand, like, a white working class. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and think about, oh, it's not about racism. It's about state, no, and other things. Like, those stories were all happening at the same time. I just feel like this is, like, an erasure of a complicated public discourse arena that becomes like the liberals all agree on these things so okay. like the New York Times no that's fair enough but alright the idiots that he was referring to did think that and they were obsessed with it and I think that was I just I just liked being reminded of that because it made me think like fucking hell that was crazy when everyone believed that Donald Trump was a Russian agent or were willing to put forward a theory that Donald Trump was like a Russian agent like that did take place on mainstream news programs yeah, but see but that's complicated because it's again it's like the mixture of the conspiracy theory with the actual conspiracy and there is there is proof that you know that Russia put a lot of money having like lots of hackers and tw- you know, like and, and th- it might not have influenced anything but there was there is proof that there was a lot of like action on the Russian side to try yeah, to yeah there was a lot election. of action in in but but I think we were having these conversations after after the Brexit vote like the obsession with like a second referendum was the same here right like I'm not claiming that every single person who voted against Brexit then wanted a second referendum but there was a hardcore of people who were quite you know who are part of the elite who were really obsessed with it and it was like to me it seemed to have no function at all apart from proving that they were right about being right in the first place and I think the Russian conspiracy in America did serve the same thing even though I I totally agree there was Russian interference in well there's lots and lots of foreign interference in lots and lots of elections around the world because of social media but no I totally take your point like he's he's and he did that thing of like saying the white radicals as well when he just meant I don't know what he meant but he just like says these like groups of people and you're like who are they? these groups of people that he's never part so he's not part of the liberals he's not part of the white radicals he's not part and Ron Simon asked him on the podcast like who is we and he's like we is everybody (laughs) and it's like oh yeah because I wanted to pick you up actually because you said because he always says oh I knew this and I that but he never says I and that's the ideological and rhetorical manoeuvre right is to not actually say me and you me and you know this and everyone else is an idiot it's to never actually say I but to always say we and we as in all conspiracies but I think it's it's not even like he says we he doesn't say we he just name others the scientists are stupid and didn't know the academics the liberals the white radicals you know everyone there's a we that is not any of those groups that is the we that he's part of that is the real we it's like the we of the people and this is when I 
yesterday when I finished and I was like, oh my God, Curtis is so kerny. And I was thinking about sentimentality and I was thinking about this Berlin. Berlin had this amazing trilogy of sentimentality and politics. And, and she has the only one that I've read, which is the middle one, which is about the kind of like reframing of womanness during the Reagan administration and how, you know, feminism colluded with that and this idea that you use sentimental, sentimentality to kind of like yeah, create this bond of authenticity and like shared experience. So, you know, so Reagan kind of, Reagan kind of like redefines womanhood in a sense that you become like, you know, we're women, we share this thing, we're both equal, like whatever, there's this essence. And I will always have something more in common with a woman that I will have with a man because we share that essence, which is super interesting because then the narrative is that the left invented anti-politics, but I think Berlin would say like, this is, this is like another way of inventing identity politics that is like extremely damaging but I thought about that again as a device that if Curtis uses this sentimentality and this kind of corniness to again create this idea of the we and that we share we share this knowledge and we share this experience and we share this idea that the world needs to change tomorrow thank you David Graeber for inspiring us and and we can create this new world and he's like creating this new world around him or something like that this use the sentimentality just place him at the center of this new share loving idea of the future or something and he uses that David Graeber quote again at the end and I've been right as I keep mentioning I've been writing about this How It's Made TV program I was writing about the the pretzel episode of How It's Made where they twist the pretzel and it's a machine that twists the pretzel and it goes so fast that it's like too hard to comprehend but of course it's also doing a very complex complex manoeuvre that would have been done by skilled bakers in the past so they do this two shot thing where it says the noodle the dough what is it the dough noodle is taken by the machine and folded into it twisted into a pretzel and you see the machine mid close up normal speed and then you cut to a close up of the machine at slow mo doing the same thing you still can't understand it but it is being clarified like clarification is taking place you're being shown it at half speed closer and then they repeat exactly the same line of dialogue and I hadn't noticed it when I watched it the first time they say the dough noodle has been taken by the machine and is having its and you're like oh the dough noodle's having its thing oh right cool and then it moves on because that's the end and that's they've only got the you know five seconds before they have to move on to the next process because it's five minutes show and obviously Curtis has a long time he doesn't have to do this but he neatly wraps it up by like literally at the start of the show he has that David Graeber quote and at the end of the show he has the David Graeber quote but he says it out loud so it's like he's clarifying even the quote has to be clarified but it doesn't make it any less general or kind of banal as you've noticed it's a very general statement what's Graeber's vibe why is Curtis drawn to Graeber do you think I don't know I mean Graeber's an anarchist Curtis is libertarian probably libertarian do you think that's what yeah that's kind of the vibe you get I think that's you know I think he'd enjoy he'd enjoy that stuff I don't think he'd like bureaucracy no um Graeber writes in a very clear accessible style (laughs) I think there's I think they share I think that that matters yeah I think they share a lot of sort of common you know, a common ground in, per- I think, in I terms think of style. I also and- like reclaiming that, you know, radicality should be placed in white dudes. Uh, That's very central to his thinking. And I think, I don't know how it happened in the kind of final years of his life or something, but when we were reading him, which is like five years ago, and, you know, um, 
I was just so annoyed because all he was writing all the stuff and he wasn't referring to any like feminist thinkers or he was writing stuff that was like so have been thought so much for like feminist sociologists and stuff and he was just like dudes 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 no one has ever written about this and I'm like no you just don't read people that have vaginas that's your problem or that are not white like that's his thing even though he, he in theory he makes something that is like very you know it's for everybody and it's like neutral and stuff so I think I think that project and I think to me that's part of Curtis project as well is like to kind of like place again like who is gonna ima- who is gonna lead us to imagine yeah. the new world it's gonna be a white dude that is not in, acad- in, in the academia that sees himself as a, like a renegade because his ideas are so radical and he sees all the stuff that no one sees and I also, if you're looking at that much footage, you probably don't have much time to read, so you're probably only able to read a few books or, like, the few introductions to a few books or some essays or something. Like, you're probably not sitting down to, like, a book that you don't already think might confirm some of your ideas that you've had for your massive, long TV programme that you have to make. Like, not being a dick, like, he's obviously hasn't got loads of researchers now, the budget has been cut, and it's just him in, like... Where was he making this film? The New York... New York mag or NY Times article is funny because he's like he made this whole film in like the White Cube or something like the White Cube gallery like someone had lent him the gallery or something while it was closed and he's just in there with like a MacBook Pro like watching millions of hours of footage I think just yeah I think you're right I think he's just a like he's a researcher isn't he and I think he'll know and he's an experienced researcher I think he'll know exactly what he needs to research what he needs to read you know like for the level of information that he wants to present like I don't think he re- needs to read loads of I don't think he's someone who reads people so that they can disagree with him and change his mind and expand I think he's the sort of person who who happily just reads stuff that makes him realise how brilliant she is over and over don't we all don't we <laughs> <laughs> if Curtis made another film in like four years or whenever, however long he takes would you watch it? depends on how many minutes it <laughs> you find out in advance how long the last episode was I don't well I have to say I, I think if he made like a single film I might watch it but if it, if it was a, a series like this I don't think I'd invest the time to be honest I think I want to watch what's his film that sounds like the name of a ship or something is it like Mayflower or May no the Mayfair the Mayfair yes Mayfair set yeah yeah so because I read again like I was going back to Twitter yesterday and kind of like looking at the people that I like and a lot of the people that I um and I was like I went back because I was like why do you like this this is like so horrible they were saying like oh this is actually very bad but the May the May first set it's really good that's such a great film so I want to watch that okay let's yeah I mean maybe not straight away but yeah okay that's that's one to I think this is definitely I think for me this is is this the worst yeah I think this 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 feels like quite different to the others and is yeah and is not and is the worst I think the others have got the same problems but they're much it feels like with the other films I think this is just from memory so I might be completely wrong he goes into he does go into more detail about fewer characters and you know some of that stuff about him constructing his own I mean, he still does use it to construct his argument, but it feels less so, I think. 
this feels like a kind of magnum opus or something yeah. just like this is my grand idea yeah. of everything that's wrong with the world whereas I think before he would take a discreet part of the world and and look at or, or history and look at that I think that's so interesting in terms of technique because in the end I do get it. Like, I feel like this is not very well made in the sense that it's not smooth enough. But if it was well made, like, if it was a fascinating object, like, I'm going to use fascinating, he's using fascinating, I wouldn't mind. You know what I mean? Like, all those questions were just like, I've watched so much stuff in art and stuff that is like super problematic and horrible. And you're like, but this is amazing. But I don't have this relation with this. I don't have this. This is problematic, but it's amazing. I'm just like, this is so boring. Yeah. And problematic. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. I think that when he takes like a little discreet sliver of the world and really like gets into it, then that technique is like a really nice way to make a documentary where maybe quite a lot of footage might be boring if you played it out properly. That sounds, um, yeah, in, just in terms of what you're saying about making a fascinating object, um, it might all look cooler if there's cool music behind it, which other documentary makers aren't really allowed to do because the BBC wouldn't let them do it. But for some reason, Curtis gets away with it. Whereas this time... Ah, oh, these grand like sweeps of history. I, I kind of just want to watch something about one bit of that, and that would be fine. Like, just in general, my interest is generally in small things at the moment, and not in massive things. And maybe that's why it appealed to me. That style appealed to me more when I was younger, because I guess I was just like, oh, cool, a big theory of the 20th century. That will help me get to grips with the world. So, yeah, I don't know if I'd... Yeah, maybe you're right if it was like a single film, but a series... And I definitely wouldn't subject it to this level of scrutiny because it just has not made me enjoy it more at all. <laughs> I have another thing which I think really helped me, um, but this might be a, like a, me being a foreign person and understanding words, but I read this thing on The Atlantic this week from this um, entomologist that became sort of a historian. He does history with data. I yeah, what's his name? name? Do you remember Tur- Turkner or something? I'll, I'll say at the start of the um, podcast. But he's a Russian guy, right? Yeah, he's a Russian guy. So he kind of like, he does this weird thing. Uh, he's, it's really funny because he's so much like Curtis, but also very against Curtis in a sense, like patterns are his thing. So he goes back into history and he maps um, what are the elites. And his idea is that you have revolts of crisis when like too many people that, when the elites are like so swollen that a lot of people that kind of fit the, the criteria to be part of the elite cannot be part of the elite. They can't get the jobs. They can't accrue the power that actually yeah, they exactly. feel Which is, is theirs. I, I find it really... See, to me, all these people, like, this guy is like, because I'm not the elite. And he's like, oh, but oh, he, yeah, that's so funny. he has, like, a tenure, tenure job. But he decided he's not going to work, but he gets paid. Uh, and he publishes these books. And he's, like, super influential in his own way. But he's like, I'm not the elite. But the reporter for The Atlantic is the elite because he gets read, read by thousands or hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people. And he doesn't. And, and I, I thought... Because I read that before watching the last episode. Um, it kind of like helped me understand, like, you know, Dominic Cummings and a lot, a lot of this, the, the ways, again, like Trump and all these people use the word elite and who's there or not. And why, when Adam Curtis t- is talking about himself in the podcast, he's also not part of the elite, even though he has his... He's worked at the BBC for like 30 years. <laughs> has his own department at the BBC. I'm not an elite. And I, and I don't, I don't buy... I don't buy the kind of like data aspect of the theory but I find that yes. interesting this idea yeah, that yeah. he's like an elite I don't even know how to use the word anymore but like he's like this person who has this immense amount of privilege and status that 
there's a resentment in Curtis' work about how he's not part of the people who gets to explain the world. You know, that's that's what there are the scientists, there's the academics, there's this, all these resentments about this group of people that always get it wrong. They have never seen it. And how he's not part of like he's operating from outside of this and maybe that's the libertarian stuff or, but there's something there yeah, that I find interesting I don't I, I have to disagree with you I don't think he is resentful his position I don't sense that in his tone anyway but I definitely think that he the way he positions himself as an external explainer who's one of the few able to make sense of something that everyone else seems to always get wrong but I, d- I don't sense that, sense that tone of resentment. But I did think that interview was interesting with that Russian historian because it was a different way of thinking about reactionary politics being about elites and not being about mass yes. democracy. Yes, yes, right? And that was definitely relevant. I de- Curtis would definitely see that as an interesting take. I mean, just as, you know, like an aside, that guy seemed completely ridiculous. Like he was claiming to be able to map the the num like the f- actual numerical amounts of elites in like the 16th century or something. You just think like, what are you on about? Like it doesn't mean like it literally can't be true. So therefore, like the idea that he's doing data driven science therefore also isn't true. Anyway, yeah, that yeah. I mean, it's super interesting because what he does is what Curtis does which is he just like comes up with like definitions right so he's like oh yeah so but in the 16th centuries we look at the numbers and then and lawyers in America yeah. are the elite and then in, in 1800s we look so he looks at the number and then he comes up with like a definition of what the elite is that fits his numbering uh, and then he has this graph that is only like what Oscar says it's only like a post post-diction is not a prediction like it doesn't work towards the future because you never know actually what the right definition is but if you knew you could predict it like it's there I also my favorite thing his measure of violence basically said that the most violent times in the 20th century were 1920 19 mid 1960s and the 1970s and I was like he was like he didn't count the civil the American civil war and he didn't count world war two <laughs> that was so good why did he did he have a reason for not I think counting? he was more, well not a, not, a, not a legitimate one but he said he was more interested in violence within countries rather than interstate violence but also for him like the civil war is not about um, elite and status somehow right. so it doesn't apply yeah. <laughs> it's not for real anyway let's leave him because he's not I don't I don't know if Curtis is interested in him but I, I definitely see the connection what, what could we watch next so I wanted to watch so Again, in my Twitter thing yesterday, I went back to Harry... I don't know how to pronounce Kunsuri. it. Yeah, Kunsuri. And Because I'm reading the red pill and I'm really loving it. And he was talking about Curtis and um, he also really, really didn't like it. And then he was saying, you know, just watch... If you want to watch something that is like Curtis but good, just watch Lutz Dambeck, which is the guy that I mentioned the first. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then he recommended one that is on Canopy. And he was like, yes, yeah, so he, he was like, I just, you know, watch uh, Curtis. And then just afterwards, I watched this Lost Dumbeck film. And he just like, it just made me realize, oh, this is what Curtis does. But be- like properly or like better or more interesting. And he has, you know, he, he has this kind of more art background, a way to relate it to images and histories and stuff. So maybe, maybe we can watch that. Thanks so much to Andrea and Ross for joining me on that podcast and thanks to Oscar as well for his work across the podcast. 
I hope you will stick with us. We are not watching any more Adam Curtis, but we probably will come back to this format of doing some, um, like looking at some films, probably some more video essay films. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, then join us for the next episode. Okay, thanks so much. See ya.